Our first reading this morning is from the book of Job, chapter 31. And this is Job speaking to God. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbour's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did he not make me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with a the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendour I could not do such things. If I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security, if I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendour so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those of my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveller. If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. 
Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as, a ruler, as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Our second reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Thanks, Simone, for... Ooh. Thank you, for, uh, Simone, for a couple of uh, long readings today. This week, um, I heard a piece from our former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson on his YouTube channel, which I think was timely and probably one of the more impacting messages I've heard in a very long time, uh, where he described the cultural challenges that we face both from without and within, and how we might rediscover our optimism in our liberty. Uh, this piece was called Western Freedoms Make Our Culture Worth Defending. And uh, in this penultimate study in Galatians, I wanted to give us a couple of bookends, um, the first half of which is the beginning of um, the kind of tail end of his presentation. And I'm going to read it for you, uh, where he says, when our society starts to lose its faith and its virtues, it starts to disintegrate. That is what I think we are starting to see around us today, and what so many people comment on all the time. Too many people now confuse liberty with license. Liberty must always be accompanied by wisdom and virtue if it is to last. Now we'll hold that 
comment as a, as a bookend with what we look at at the end, and particularly as we think about the liberty that we have as God's people described by Paul in his letter to the Galatians. You will recall that the big idea of this letter is found in verse 1 of chapter 5, where it's written, it is for freedom that Christ has set his people free. Therefore, says Paul, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And you will remember as we've been looking at Galatians, we have been considering in the first section the gospel of the crucified Messiah. The gospel of the crucified Messiah, which I think Nicola in beginning her prayers really clearly articulated for us. And the impact of that gospel is that it has brought together a, a new multi-ethnic family, as we see in chapters 3 and 4. And this family is transformed, chapters 5 and 6, by the Spirit of God who indwells the people of God. And faith in God's grace to us in the person of Jesus, Savior and Lord, brings us liberty. A liberty that enables us no longer to be tyrannized by the law, the good law of God, or, or to make up our own kind of law or legend by which we can judge others and feel righteous in our own sight, but rather a law that has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus and now is good for his people because the Spirit is the one who leads us. And we see today how the challenge of living a virtuous life rather than a vicious life, and I mean vicious in its original meaning, that is a cognate of vice, a life full of vice, how the challenge to live a virtuous life is impossible without the transforming work of the Spirit of God in his people. Because naturally, we with everyone else can slip into that yoke of slavery, which is licentiousness, to do things pleasing to the flesh, to live according to our own thoughts and feelings. And so just by way of calibration, because of course everything's in context, we started at verse 16, but 16 is preceded by 13 to 15. What we see in verses um, 13, 13 sorry, to 15 is um, that we, with our liberty, have limits. We exercise self-control over the freedom that God has given us. But the liberty that we have ha has love in it. That is, that we have an opportunity to serve others with our freedoms. And then finally, that the law of God shapes our freedom. Now that we've been freed from any tyranny of the word of God, rather in Christ, in the power of his spirit, we learn to love his word and joyfully surrender ourselves to it. So in essence, the big idea for this week is, and we've got three parts to this talk, Liberty, not license, to live by the law, and that is to love. Now, we're coming to the Word of God. The things that I have to say are of no consequence unless His Spirit is our teacher, so I will lead us in prayer and ask God by His grace to sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. Would you join me? Father God, we live in a world in which there is an ongoing rebellion against you. And we thank you, Father, for the liberty that we share in our Western world built on a Judeo-Christian ethic. But more than this, the liberty that has been won for us as followers of the Lord Jesus 
by Jesus as our Savior at the cross and Jesus as our Lord who now rules with you in glory. Father, we're so grateful for your spirit who is with us, who indwells us, and with whom we can walk by your grace. Please would you teach us by your word to do those very things, to sharpen our minds and to soften our hearts, that we might be captivated by the liberty we have, that we would not be tyrannized by the license of the flesh, but rather keep in step with your spirit, that we might live out your law in love of others and you. Amen. So firstly, liberty, walking by the Spirit. A vehicle like a car or a bicycle or a plane or a boat uh, takes us from point A to B. And so we have been moved from license to limit. We've been moved from law to love, from vice to virtue, and that's a journey. And we need a vehicle or a vessel within which to travel, so to speak, because sin remains. We may have the Spirit of God living in us as God's people, but we are still in the world of flesh. And so our minds and our bodies and our spirits are still, to some extent, captivated by these fleshly things. The world is the world of flesh, but the Spirit is God's coming into the world for us. And Jesus ascended so that he might send his Spirit to be with us. And when I speak of the Spirit of God, I speak of him as a he, as the Word of God describes him. And do so confirming that he is God. And so he is our vehicle, he is our vessel, that we might not gratify, verse 16, the sins or the desires of the flesh. His means of our transformation is his word in the Bible. But of course, you know that's not all, because there are very beautiful things in creation, aren't there? Things that can lift our souls. Music, creative arts. For some of us, it might be sport. There are things that lift us, and God does give us the goodness of creation and his common grace, but when his desire for us is that we would look more like Jesus, it is only the work of the Spirit that can achieve that within us. He is, if you like, the Spirit, the wind in the sails of our ships, such that we cannot say with William Ernest Henley, I am the captain of my own soul, rather, We say with Walt Whitman, oh, captain, my captain, where would you have me go? And so it says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And and it's important that we know that this is only bi-directional. I think we live in a world where there's a lot of gray areas. There are gray areas, but I think people would have us believe that there are more gray areas than there really are. For when a person comes to recognize Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, we turn to him and turn our backs on the desires of the flesh. And so it is that the Spirit will will take us in one direction and away from 
evil, away from the devil, away from the ways of the flesh in this world and draw us to Christ. Because the Spirit is contrary to the flesh, verse 17. You remember last week we were talking about those old school science experiments where oil and water do not mix. Well, here in verse 17, Paul says very clearly, the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict to what, with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. I don't know if you've heard the story of the two tigers, two competing tigers, and, and sometimes that represents the nature of, um, of, of the, the soul and the body, but here, let's just think in terms of the spirit and the flesh. There's two competing tigers. The question is, which tiger will you feed? Will you feed the tiger of the spirit with the word of God? And, and, and listening to that gentle prompting of the Spirit within our lives? Or will we lend ourselves to worldly agendas and the realm of the flesh? Which one will we feed? Because we live in a world in tension, don't we? There's desire that remains in us. Remember last week we were talking about how sin remains but no longer reigns. This is the tension that we experience. Paul describes this tension more keenly in chapter 7 of his letter to the Romans. And whether you believe that that's Paul the man before he met the Lord Jesus or Paul the man with the ongoing tension, it's kind of neither here nor there. The point is for us that there is a tension that remains in life. And we now have the liberty to either surrender ourselves to a license of fleshly living or to seek the Spirit and seek to keep in step with him. And brothers and sisters, let me just say, this is a tension, if you feel it keenly, that will be with us until the day that we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. So it's okay. <laughs> and we best get used to it. But the profound thing is that God has not left us to face that tension alone. He is with us. And walking in line with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, is not under the law. Verse 18, it says here, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You remember how uh, the Judaizers wanted to impose Jewish customs on those who were in Galatia. And Paul was saying very clearly, these are simply not needed. The law is a good measure of how to be right with God, but Jesus, the Son of God, had come into the world to fulfill that law. And so now the law for God's people is both mentor and measure in a constructive way. We are free in the power of the Spirit of God to seek to be obedient to his word. And the Spirit is like the vessel that carries us through and gives assurance to the people of God. I know that some of us at the moment are really struggling. Nicola led us in prayer for those who are suffering amongst us, and even this week we have had families who have lost loved ones. We have had families who are sick and suffering. And even as I look around the room, I see nodding heads because you know this is the reality. The Lord permits us to live in this tension for now. But in the Lord Jesus and his gospel, he gives us the assurance that we will make it. I want to quote to you 
uh, from the words of J.C. Ryle as we think about the ways in which, perhaps if I can change the metaphor a bit, we together as the Lord's people are rather like the ship as, as a vessel where the Spirit of God might fill our sails. J.C. Ryle writes, and I quote, and I just hasten to add that some of this language is quite old, the poor believing soul, says Ryle, may have full assurance of his pardon and acceptance with God. He may be troubled with fear upon fear and doubt upon doubt. He may have many an inward question and many an anxiety, many a struggle and many a misgiving. Clouds and darkness, storms and tempest to the very end. I will engage, I repeat, that bare simple faith in Christ shall save a man though he may never attain to assurance. But I will not engage, it shall bring him to heaven with strong and abounding consolations. I will engage, it shall land him in safe harbor, but I will not engage that he shall enter that harbor in full sail, confident and rejoicing. I shall not be surprised, says Ryle, if he reaches his desired haven, weather beaten and tempest tossed, scarcely realizing his own safety until he opens his eyes in glory. I say these words not to trouble us but rather to say that the Lord knows the journey on which we are. And experience and feelings are not the barometer of our salvation or our growing maturity, but rather in those times we lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross to be assured that he has done it and it is finished. And so as we look now to these vices we can know that the Spirit will journey with us and convict us both of our failings, but give us the confidence to come and lay those failings before the feet of Jesus. And so I move to my second point, not license. You'll notice here the image that I bring up is that of a heart in a vice. And the word vice, a different vice actually, but the word vice, it's an illustration, right? The, the word vice comes from the Latin word vitium, which means falling short or failing. It has led to the word vicious, uh, to mean, as it originally did, full of vice. And the vice in these verses are evidenced in every single human life in history. But the thing is that over time, in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus, these vices reduce. And just so that we, we know this for sure, you know, the Lord Jesus was subject to temptation. There's not one of these desires of the flesh that wasn't there for him. He was tempted, but he did not sin. And sometimes in my heart, maybe in yours too, I kind of say to myself, well, that's all well and good, but he was God. So he's got an unfair advantage. Is that reasonable that I might have to endure these temptations? Well, the Word of God is wonderfully precious in this because as we read in the book of Hebrews, and I quote, we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so as we think of these vices, these acts of the flesh, well, firstly, they are obvious. You notice how um, Job listed off that uh, list of ways in which he stood righteous before God. He was a man of morality in his day, and God asked the devil to consider 
his righteousness. He seems to be a man of, of good virtue, but in that list we see many of ice, don't we? And we know that if, if Job in any way was right before God, it was only by the grace of God and fully that grace realized in the person of his Messiah, Jesus. But the reason the acts of the flesh are obvious is because they're obvious, aren't they? Vices are obvious. We, 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 we look at this list and we go, well, it's not an exhaustive list. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 50 specific vices described. And in fact, there are many more than that. Indeed, Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 30, that they, we keep inventing ways of doing evil. The other reason they're obvious is because they're everywhere, aren't they? We see them in one another and we see them in the mirror. But the thing about these acts of the flesh is that they are offensive to God because God is a perfect and holy God. And so as we look at this list of vices and we explore some of them together, we do so in the context of knowing our salvation is sure in Jesus, but that we must keep in step with the Spirit and apply ourselves to this so that we might not be troubled by these vices. And here they are listed. I've separated them off a bit because, and commentators have done a whole bunch of, you know, categorizing these, but this is mine for you today. First three seem to be related to sex, sex and sexuality. The next two seem to be related to religion. The third relating to conflict. And the fourth one is just kind of a reckless lack of restraint, as best I can see. So let's deal firstly with um, sexual sin has its own category, and um, Paul picks up immorality, impurity, and sensuality, which are kind of the three amigos of sexual sinfulness. I think the distinction that he's making here are the ways in which sexual desire manifests in the attitude, in the mind, then moves to the affections, and then ultimately into the action, the expression. Attitude, affection, and action. And of course, we remember that when we think about what sex is about, um, it's God's good gift. I have to say sometimes, friends and neighbors do ask me, why is it that the church is so preoccupied with sex? And quite often I think to myself, well, why is it the world so preoccupied with sex? It is God's good gift, and he has given us his word so that we know what it is for. And today, there is a very significant word when it comes to the realm of sexual expression. And that word is consent, isn't it? Basically, we must not compel someone into sex. That's abuse. And we must not, according to the laws of our land, commission someone for sex. That is prostitution although, of course, there are many ways in which people prostitute themselves to one another. But, but once two parties, or sometimes more, have consented, then they can do pretty much anything they want, right? That's pretty much the assessment of today's world, I think. Which is such a stark contrast to what the Word of God prescribes. Because for followers of the Lord Jesus, sex and sexual consent is only for the marriage commitment between a man and a woman coming together. That is the space for it. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm saying this in public and on live stream, and that that is, in these days, quite a controversial statement. But the Word of God is clear on this matter. And so, 
if sex is reserved for the marriage commitment between a man and a woman, that means that any sexual expression outside marriage, whether it be uh, adultery or sexual expression before marriage, instead of celibacy, it's against God's good design. Why is it that Paul starts with sex? Why is it that sex is so important? Well, I think it is important because God says our bodies are committed to him as temples designed either for him or for one flesh between a man and a woman. Sexual expression is, is working specifically against God's desire to sanctify us, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, outside that commitment. And so Paul describes how sexual sins have not just a physical but a spiritual significance in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 18, where he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, and this is the body, brothers and sisters, in whom the Holy Spirit of God himself dwells. Now we can trace the contours back from action to affection to attitude in the mind, and we need the Word of God to transform our thinking and the Spirit to convict us that we will renew this contrary to the flesh thinking, His measure, so that we can walk by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus indeed says that it's the pure in heart that are the concern for Him. In fact, he goes so far in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 to say that even if we look at somebody lustfully or look at somebody to incite lust from them, we are failing before God. I mean, that's an impossible bar, isn't it? But he kept it. And now by the power of his spirit, that's his aspiration for us as his followers, to know good limits for self-control, for sexual thinking, saying and doing. And so in practical terms, and I share this for us here today, but also for us to pass on to the next generation, because you know that our children and our children's children are getting a very different message from the world. Pornography is nothing but destructive. And if you're in it and doing it, turn it off and have accountability with somebody else and encourage your children to do likewise. And talking about sex in a way that incites lust or coarse joking about sexuality is unhelpful. Finally, what is the antidote to sexual sin? Well, love says that the antidote to sexual sin is humility. Recognizing that we have liberty in these bodies for the God-given expression of sexuality, but to do in accord with good for God and for neighbor. It is less than good when we seek to use sexuality for our own satisfaction. But to first seek pleasure and joy in our relationship with God, and for those of us who are married, to seek to please our spouse in the experience of sex, not using sex, but giving freely to one another, is fulfilling the good purpose for which God has given it, for pleasure and procreation. And a failure to do this in our liberty and sex will always lead to trouble, grief, and brokenness. Because sex is a glue. It's like a glue. When two become one in one flesh, 
it leads to deep, enduring binding. That's not to say that there isn't forgiveness available from the Lord Jesus where we have slipped up. There is. Where there's repented sexual sin, the Lord Jesus has the power to bring healing for that. But sex is like glue, and the more you do it outside God's giving, the glue will harden the heart. Well, that was a lot to consider, wasn't it? And if I go like that through the other areas, we're going to be here a very long time. So I'm just going to steam through. And I know that there's sermon upon sermon that we could talk about in these other areas. But religion has its own category, idolatry and sorcery. A failure to look to God as the provider of wisdom in life, but to create things in our own mind and then make gods out of that is religion. And submission to created things rather than the creator is the work of the devil and it will lead to a failure of love in our relationships and a neglect of God's good law. Conflict, we could be here all day. But at the end of the day, all these things are about a posture of antagonism and aggression rather than alliance. And this always comes from a sense of dissatisfaction and a lack of contentment where we covet those things that God has not given us. And finally, restraint in and of itself is a failure of being willing to limit ourselves in our liberty. And I have to say that drunkenness, uh, blurring of the spirit with spirits or alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, it, it's all the same stuff. It's just, it's pandering to the fleshly amygdala in the brain, which takes us into the realm of primitive living, far from the way in which God has made us in his image. I think the culture of our world is still well summarized in Austin Powers, international man of mystery. He was a man who was woken in the story from cryogenic sleep from the 1960s and now came into the 1990s, although of course it applies 30 years on just as well. When asked if he will be okay in this strange modern new world, he responds, well, as long as people are still having promiscuous sex with many anonymous partners, while at the same time experimenting with mind-expanding drugs in a consequent free environment, I'll be sound as a pound. All right. Thirdly and finally, we live by the law, by the Spirit, the word virtue comes from the Latin word. We're two on, thanks, Keth. Uh, the word virtue comes from the Latin word via, meaning man. It means manliness or valor. In time, its usage has come to describe conformity to a right standard or moral excellence. And virtues described here in these verses are evidenced in the lives of human beings throughout history, but they only really have their pure form through the power of the Spirit at work in the people of God. The reality for each of us is that we cannot conjure virtue, but virtues come from divine transformation, the work of the mighty Spirit of God in the lives of his people. And as we nurture our faith in the Lord Jesus, we begin to see his Spirit at work in us and bringing behavioral change so that our hearts are transformed by his Spirit and we look a little bit more like Jesus day by day. What are these virtues? The fruit of the Spirit. 
It's rather like the tree planted by living waters. As the Spirit of God nourishes us as his people, we become like a tree that bears his fruit. And so when we think about these fruit of the Spirit, what we see is the overflowing beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ manifest in his people. And when we look at these words, we recognize each of them as virtues to which we all aspire. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law because the Spirit of God at work in us fulfills the law that we might see these things cultivated. It is for liberty that Jesus has set us free. And this happens with Paul, as we say, in line with Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ, through his Spirit, now lives in me. The life I live, I live for the one who laid down his life for me. And so we crucify the flesh. Those, verse 24, who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with, his, uh, with its passions and desires. And so we see that those who belong to Jesus, when we have crucified the flesh, begin to bear this fruit in our life together. We move from the vicious to the virtuous as we keep in step with the Spirit. For it says in verse 25, thanks, Kath. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. As we grow in faith in Jesus and the Spirit is at work in us as his people, we see virtues grow and vices go. In other words, as we walk with the Spirit together, we pick up his pace and his gate for good not evil. But there is a little word of warning in this section with which Paul finishes. Verse 26, he again says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. When we look to one another and see these virtues manifest in our lives, how easy it is, isn't it, to say of ourselves and one another, isn't that good? Well done you, well done me. The danger for us as we grow to be more like Jesus is that we can land in a space of pride. And Paul reminds us to finish that it's actually about contentment in Christ, not the conceit that can come through his transformation in us. The Christian walk is not a competition. It's not even a team sport. It's a family affair. When I was younger and I had my family of origin, what we would do every Christmas is we would get together and we would have not a baked dinner, but a roast lunch for Christmas Day. We'd sit there and eat to our fill and have all the trimmings. And then we would go out for a walk afterwards, which is always a good thing to do after a big meal. But during that time, we would really enjoy one another. We'd be absolutely full of food, but we'd also be full of fun. And we would just delight to walk together. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord longs for us as his people. 
to love one another and enjoy one another in such a way that as we are filled with the Spirit, it might overflow in our lives together. And what a special and precious thing it is when that happens, right? When we see that in one another. But I want to challenge us in the week ahead to think beyond just the blessings that flow from being God's church, but what it means for us as his church in the broader community. Because liberty by the Spirit, not license in the flesh, and living in line with the law is something that can utterly transform the world around us. I share with you now the second section of what John Anderson had to say. We return to his words, and I repeat what I said earlier. This is, uh, this is the first section. He said, when our society starts to lose its faith and its virtues, it starts to disintegrate. That is what I think we're starting to see around us today, and what so many people comment on all the time. Too many people now confuse liberty with license. Liberty must always be accompanied by wisdom and virtue if it is to last. There's a sense in which we enjoy that within our nation because we are built on a Judeo-Christian heritage. But for us, as the Lord's people, we have wisdom because God has given us his word. And we express these virtues because God has given us his spirit. And so the challenge that John has issued to the nation I think has a special poignancy for us today as the Lord's people in the world. Let me read the second section of what he had to say. He says, we will not fully understand our freedoms unless we understand our responsibilities which accompany them. So let's celebrate the freedoms we enjoy in the West. Let's not take them for granted. They were hard won. They could easily be lost and we need to regain our belief in them again and live as virtuous, responsible citizens in our communities, wherever they may be. And here's the challenge, brothers and sisters, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Messiah, that we might play our part in seeing not only the responsible rebuilding of our nation in culturally challenging times, but also being an influence for the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that we will see many come into the new creation he has prepared for so many in our community should they only hear the good news of Jesus. Let me pray to that end, and we'll pick up again on this in earnest next week. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for the liberty that we do fully understand and the responsibility that accompanies this because it has been won for us, hard won, by your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. Thank you that this will never be lost to us. But would you give us, Father God, the confidence and the willingness and the conviction that would enable us to live as your virtuous, responsible citizens in this world, remembering that we have an eternal citizenship in heaven, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We pray, Father, that you would take us and use us for your glory in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.